0: Good evening and welcome to episode two of the Crash and Burn Movie Podcast. I'm Jim Cogan. I'm John Wisby. How you doing, John? Ah, no bad, yourself? Excellent. We are back for episode two. We've made it to the difficult second
1: episode. Yeah. There we go. A difficult second episode.
0: Are we going to have a punch up during this episode and never talk to one another for a good 10 years, and then have a comeback episode in five years' time? When we both run yeah. out of money and have no, large no, well, uh, uh, cocaine when
1: addictions? When we talk about boxing movies later, we've got quite a bit of fighting. Fair enough.
0: Are we talking about boxing movies later?
1: It's on, the, it's on the, one of the ones that came up on the list we put up when we were working out what, before we launched the Much, it, much later.
0: Much, yeah. much later. Not this evening. No, not this not evening. Not this evening. No, no. But before we start. Um, we did some filming at the weekend, didn't we? He did some filming. I did some filming. I did some acting. You did some acting. Um, I'm Bad acting. Impressed. Just to anybody who's like somehow downloaded randomly a podcast and doesn't know what I'm talking about, this podcast runs in conjunction with a blog that I write um, which documents my amateur filmmaking exploits. And my current project is a music video for your very band, is it not? It is. ADM stashed in. A new album
1: on the Pinstripe Planet is coming out 29th of September. There we go. Is that confirmed now? Is that all definite?
0: That's what we're aiming for. That's what you're aiming for. It'll be late. Anyway. (laughs) It's a year late as it is. (laughs) There you go. What's a few more months and a year late? The difficult second album. (laughs) There you go. That's because I didn't produce it. That's why it's late. There you go. Well, you weren't available, were you? I haven't got a studio anymore. <laughs>
1: exactly, <laughs> so I carry on. Yes.
0: <laughs> there were technical difficulties. But I'm making a video for you guys, and I have to admit, in the scorching heat with the technical difficulties with green screens, I was very impressed uh, with your uh, your acting prowess. And uh, it, the bit of test footage, although it does implicate that you possibly blow certain farm yard animals, it does look really good. Uh, and everybody's very impressed.
1: But he hasn't got proof.
0: I don't know, I just haven't released that video yet. <laughs> That's <what it> is. <laughs> anyway, should we
1: move on? Let's move on, yeah. Uh, what have you been watching this week? Um, well, I'll, I'll quickly mention the fact that uh, this very day I watched, uh, got around to watching Sharktopus. Sharktopus
0: is, is a legendary film. Yeah,
1: Roger Coleman, but I'm not going to talk about that one because I'm saving that for a future show. Fantastic. But what I will go to talk about is a uh, film that I caught on uh, Film 4 the other day. A uh, bit of a classic. One of the ones I I'd like to watch while I'm on. The Way to the Stars, 1945. You go for the older films. Yeah, well, right like, sometimes if I've got nothing to do in the afternoon, I I put on film four and have an old black and white movie on. So do like an old film on. Known in the states as Johnny in the Clouds. So, is anyone listening in the states? We're talking about Johnny in the Clouds. Um, <laughs> Am I the only one who finds that alternative title a bit
0: rude? Yes, you are. <laughs> OK. Um, Johnny's in the
1: clouds. It's uh, directed by a guy called Anthony Asquith, who was a uh, stall and the pillar of the British film industry in the 40s and 50s. He did, such, uh, leg- he did the legendary adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest. The, the Winslow Boy was one of his, and the classic submarine movie, We Dive at Dawn. But Light in the clouds was. Uh, it was filmed during the very, very last couple of weeks of World War II. And is the story of life on an RAF base in East Anglia from the uh, start of the Battle of Britain through to VE Day. It's, apart from one sequence about ten minutes into the film where the Luftwaffe are attacking the base, it's a war film with no action. OK. Because you, uh, it's set on this bomber base. First of all, it's a British bomber base and you see the planes taken off to bomb the evasion barges and then they go off to raid Berlin in 1942.
0: What happens when the bombers aren't there? Then do they
1: just fall well, on the base? Okay, yeah, yeah, it's kind of you've got lots of sh- of um, films of kind of the girlfriend who's the spymate in the pub of one of the towel gunners, kind of you know serving drinks and trying not to think about her boyfriend over Berlin, and uh, you've got lots. Of, you've got John Mills playing the uh, the base com- base commander nibbling his chalk while dispatch board. and it's basically it's about the lives of the people in the base and around the base. Set against the backdrop of World War II rather than being about World War II itself. But is it good? It is it is a very emotive moving film. Great cast, uh Sir Michael Redgrave, John Mills, Stanley Holloway, Trevor Howard, Gene Simmons, and surprisingly, Bill Owen, compo from uh, Last of the Summer Wine. Um <laughs> in one of his one uh, well, of his very early first what well, is first or so, first or second movie. Like I said, very emotive film, very little action. So the um, only two spectacular bits, which is the air raid at the beginning, and a, and eventually USAF and the Americans take over the bomber base, and there's a flying fortress crashes at the end. Uh, but that's the only kind of thing. But it's about their people's loves, their lives, their hopes, their dreams, and their ambitions, and how war. It's about how war affects individual and um, individuals' relationships, both professionally, romantically, family relationships, and that. Just a great, powerful movie. Always, if you see it on Sally, or you see it knocking around on DVD, you pick it up and watch it. Cracking little film. Okay, I'm digging that. What yeah. else did you
0: watch, or is that uh, well, that's the only one i got for you? Ah, okay. One of the things that came up from the first podcast was the sheer number of films that I started watching but hadn't got to the end of. So I am very pleased to say, most I... things he starts, he never
1: finishes. Oh, shut your it.
0: face! You finished your first <laughs> album. Be thankful. <laughs> for that. Um, I finished Toilet Green. It was indeed people. people. <laughs> totally. the, the worst kept secret ever. Uh, I wouldn't say that yeah, I, I knew it, it was people, but uh, I must admit I liked it right up until the ending and I thought the ending was a bit of a damp squib. Um, but it was—it looked fantastic and uh, the performance was good. Even Charlton Heston, who I really can't stand, the gun-toting right wing, I used to be a lot more famous than I am now, yeah. Charlton Heston... But it was really good. And Charlton I Heston to
1: it. me is the Ted Nugent of the film world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair it, enough. I'm a rock DJ, and like, I love Ted Nugent's music, but I just hate his politics and standpoint. I say the same with Charlton Heston's movies. Oh, He's dancing cracking films, but I wouldn't like to spend ten minutes in a room with the guy. You know what I mean? Fair enough. And I also
0: managed to finish Monster Squad, which was the uh, uh, Fred Decker uh, mid-eighties horror film. Dracula recruiting all the other monsters. Mm. Um which I still can't believe you've not heard of this director or any of the films that he's done. No, I haven't
1: even heard of Monster so, Squad.
0: I hadn't heard of Monster Squad, hadn't heard of Night of the Creeps, which is uh the massively inf- I will have to uh have to lend you both of those and let you watch them. But so. highlight, absolute highlight of the week, I got to watch Robot Jocks from nineteen ninety. Have you seen that? directed by Stuart Gordon who did Reanimator which Tom, I've heard of seen *Reanimator*. yeah based seen
1: Re-Animator. On, it's uh, based, loosely based on uh hp lovcraft very story. loosely based
0: but yeah. uh, reanimator is a great film but robot jogs uh it's another dystopian uh futuristic sci-fi um much very similar to um, we talked about Rollerball last week where war has been replaced with something. In Robot Jocks, it's been replaced by the various territories and it was coming to the end of the Cold War, so it still is basically the, the Yanks versus the Ruskies mm. um, to decide who's going to take over a new territory with oil or food or whatever. Uh, they don't have a war. They get two bad actors. They put them into giant robots and they make them have uh, an extremely low budget special effects fight um it's absolutely hilarious it's almost a so bad it's good um in fact, it probably may feature in a so bad it's great um feature later on but uh, I enjoyed every minute of it, especially the bad acting and the dodgy special effects well, that's well, that's um, night, I thought, they then. don't make films like that anymore uh, probably a good thing but um it, it is of the time um and it's uh, It was really good fun. Just going to mention one other thing that I I watched, and I've actually, because it's a short film and it's freely available on, um, uh, it's not YouTube, it's Vimeo. Have you ever seen Vimeo? Yeah, yeah. It's a short uh, sci-fi film called uh, Vessel, directed by somebody called Clark Baker. Um, He's worked in movies as assistant director it looks like he's now angling for his first feature film and judging by the standard of vessel um the the guy's going to get it it's um when you see like the the cheap sci-fi films on um like the sci-fi channel um this is vastly superior to those it's um it's really shocking and it was really um really realistic and i thoroughly enjoyed it i uh, I thought I'd watch it for a bit of a laugh. That's thinking, always
1: some called of spaceship, I presume, is it?
0: No, no, it's set on an aeroplane. There is another spaceship. It's an aeroplane, routine flight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the passengers notices lights outside. Suddenly the plane gets put into some kind of suspended animation. It's kind of like a tractor beam held by a mysterious vessel, which you don't truly see. Mm-hmm. There's an alien with tentacles, and without wanting to give away... What, um, a probing? There is some probing. It's a body snatchers film. Um, it's in the great tradition of body snatchers films, and it could quite easily be expanded into a full. I mean, that's why you make a short film. You make a short film mm. that can be expanded upon, and it's just that it ticks all the boxes, and it looked fantastic. And I would suggest anybody go over to my blog um, and have a look at it. I'll give you the web address at the end of the podcast. But it looks well, super. I
1: will do that as soon as this is up.
0: Fantastic! Right, coming soon. Any movies coming up? Bit of a blank last time. We were uh, mm. probably a bit ill prepared for that. Yeah, but uh, well, I got
1: a two because I because I had a look at the, I, had a, I had a good look through the films that were coming out and viewed a few trailers and that and uh, two that sprung the mind. The second one we both we both caught our caught our eye, so We can cut that a second. We we'll do it together. But the first one is the remake of the Sweeney. The remake of the
0: Sweeney.
1: Yeah. Um. For those of you that don't know, especially those of you living overseas, Sweeney was a. Uh, for the time, quite gritty, cutting-edge cop show. you Are talking late 70s? Late 70s, early 80s. Proper Landon. Landon. Old school, you slags. Coppers. Yeah, you slag, get it shooty, go for your shooter, get not it sorted. Not very
0: politically correct policemen kicking down doors. Yeah, beating up bad guys. Crash Ford shooter. Cortinas. And yeah. Oh no, they
1: never right? crashed Ford Cortinas. Was it not Cortinas? Because the, because Ford used to supply the cars for the Sweeney. So all the cars that crashed were Voxels and Jags and... and <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of British Leyland products
0: Was it All the Sweeney who the... actually
1: drove the Ford?
0: Thing? Yes, the oh, Sweeney okay. that drove the
1: Ford Same with the professionals as well but that's a different story
0: You'd better actually explain just in case we get some international listeners what the Sweeney stands for
1: Sweeney Todd like Cockney rhyming slang Sweeney Todd Flying Squad which is the Metropolitan Police's um, serious crime unit um, They deal with things like Mafia and organised bank robbers and real salty geezers with big shooters and that kind of thing, yeah it was the Sweeney Todd that took down, uh, that took down um, uh, probably their most, the most famous cop, was the, cra- was the Craze, for the shooting of Jack the Hat McVitie. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, um, it was a hugely successful uh, um, TV series. Ran for about eight to ten years, I think it was, in Britain. They still repeat it now. Don't and it's it still repeated on cable ch- on Freeview and cable channels, etc. But they have now um, re- remaking it. The director... Is a guy called uh, Nick uh, Nick Love. I uh, was it Nick Love. I can't read my own writing here. But anyway, it's Nick somebody or other. Uh, L-O something Lee. Nick. Yeah. We like um, you, Nick. <laughs> He's probably best known for making a couple of films about football hooligans. He did the Football Factory and the 2009 remake of the film. Uh, the two interesting casting for Jack Reagan, who was played in the original by that uh, John Thor. John Thor. That's right. Uh, he's being played by Ray Winston. Oh, that's a good choice. They've gone for a uh, they've gone for somebody who knows how to talk Cockney properly. Yeah. and they've also gone for a, for a real East End boy to play George Carter, which was Dennis Walkman's character in the original. Gone for a guy called Ben Drew. It's going to be his first film, okay. but he's better known as Plan B, who's a hip uh, a London white boy hip hop star. Yeah, um, he may be able to act. I don't know.
0: He's made his own film actually. He he fancies himself as a director as well. Does he?
1: Ah. He does indeed. Well, I mean, good luck for the guy. I've seen the trailers and a few clips of the, the Sea Sweeney thing. Comes out September 12th in the UK. I've seen a few clips and I've seen a couple of trailers and it looks not bad. Do you think it's going to have any appeal beyond nostalgia? I can't see it reaching. I know Ray, Ray Winston's got a bit of Well, star I don't know horror, because, but, uh... well, it, because one of the types of film that us Brits make best. Is the gritty sort of like gangster film. Everything from sort of like Face to Essex Boys to uh, lockstock 2 Smoking Barrels, Layer Cake, Sexy Beast, etc. Okay. It's a genre of film that the Brits are good at. And you're dealing with sort of like a, a well established kind of, not say franchise, but background to this. So I think, I don't think the Yanks will get it for a minute, but I think that it might be quite successful in Britain. What's a slag? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, why are they calling Marl Slags? Why? Yeah. Exactly, you yeah. know. So, uh, looking forward to that one. I might even take this off to the cinema to see that. Fair enough. So, what are you be looking forward to? Uh, well, you've probably got more notes on it, though. I.
0: I noticed um, there is a remake of Judge Dredd coming out. Next Dredd 3D. Month. Dredd 3D. I've only briefly looked down. I know the uh, chap playing Judge Dredd. Colin uh, Urban. The only thing Star I've ever Trek, seen Lord of him, the Rings, Pathfinder. Um, I was going to say he was in Chronicles of Riddick. And which, Chronicles uh, of Riddick, yes. I know you didn't think too much no, of. No, I just don't um, like Vin Diesel. I don't like Vin Diesel, but I liked Chronicles of Riddick. I think I'm the only person on the planet who seems to like Chronicles of Riddick more than Pitch Black.
1: Didn't like Pitch Black that much. Either. I didn't like
0: Pitch Black. I like Chronicles of Riddick more, and he was in it. Mm. Um, he's about six foot seven or something ridiculous like that. Square, jawed. And I saw the trailer for Dredd. Um, he's playing it very, very straight. Certainly not as... I mean, there was a bit of comedic um, intent with the Stallone version. And I actually
1: quite like the Stallone version. Well, I hated the Stallone version. Oh, I mean, look, you're talking to someone that used to read 2000 AD I from Edition read, 1. Well, I'd never read it from Edition yeah. 1. And I mean, look, sorry, for those of you that haven't seen it, Judge Dredd should never show his face. Stallone spent most of the film with his helmet off judge Red is supposed to be about six foot He's supposed to be about six foot five slowly three foot is about three foot two it just didn't work for me i'm sorry
0: i quite like the um i quite like the the first gesture of this delay yeah. um, we'll,
1: we'll agree to differ we're not going to um, fight over
0: that i've seen the trailer there appear to be a lot of explosions mm-hmm. it seems to be all centered around storming one building and i think i might have this could be based, there is a 2000 AD, there are numerous 2000 AD Judge Dredd stories yeah. where they seem to centre around taking down a rogue block in some description. Well, it's right there.
1: based around the plot line from about 1978 and 2000 AD when they first introduced Judge Anderson. Okay. I, have, I forgot who was playing Judge Anderson, I forgot to write that down. Not too worried. But that's where they're taking it from. It's the introduction of Judge Anderson, and I can vaguely remember the story where she goes undercover and she gets kidnapped by a drugs gang and held prisoner in the block because she's Judge's uh, she's Dredd's training partner. Or, or she's assigned to Dredd for training, sort of thing, and then he loses her and she gets herself captured by the gang, so Dred leads the judges to storm him out. But there again, that's the... Dredd's, Dredd's uh, storming parts of Mega City 1 is a well, that's what pretty key point of what Judge Dredd does. Yeah? Interesting choice of director as well. Who's that? Then? Pete Travis. Pete, what does he do? Pete Travis. It's his first film. His very first. yeah. It's That's his very a, first movie.
0: Big. Are they looking? Are they looking for a franchise from this?
1: Do I don't them? know. But Pete Travis, he's, um, he's built up a really good reputation on BBC. The shooting stuff. He did the uh, dramatisation of the life of Henry the, Henry VIII. He did the uh, crime series Vantage Point. He did um, a series like Cold Feet and End Games, you know. So he, all of which were really, really well done, like TV miniseries. So you know, I think that you know, from what I've seen in the trailers and the clips, and, and had a look on the official movie website and that, I think this could this could be a bit of a hidden gem, a bit like Viva Vendetta was, you know. I must admit, V for Vendetta. I did enjoy, although it did get
0: a bit slated. So, um, hopefully, mm. it's going to be a, a surprise. A surprise one. I, I'm quite looking forward to it. September seventh. That one's it.
1: Fair enough. Maybe we'll go and see that. One, yeah, that's, uh,
0: that's one. Any um, any more films? You Line the two that
1: jumped out. Um, I'll have a, for this week.
0: I followed up last week um, and found out a little bit about the Bigfoot movie. Mm-hmm. It's called Exists. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, there is a connection to one of the co-directors um, of uh, the Blair Witch product. There were, uh, Project. There were two of them. Can't for the life of me remember which one it is. They seem to be interchangeable. But what is interesting, and fortunately there is a cast list on um, Internet Movie Database, but no trailer. Um says it's finished shooting, but there is no release date. My like Mark on
1: BCFM interviewed the director a couple of weeks back.
0: So he knows probably but a bit more about it than we yeah, do. Yeah, no, and
1: I haven't seen him since the last podcast. There so. we go.
0: Um, but no trailer at this point. Um I, have, I had a look around to see if there was a viral marketing campaign, couldn't see one. But what is interesting, um, and these things seem to go in gluts, there is another... uh found footage film about Bigfoot called The Lost Coast Tapes, um, also slated to come out this um, this autumn, so not one film about Bigfoot but two, and of which there seems to be very little detail, no trailers, so I don't know, maybe it's a marketing campaign, maybe they're aiming for curiosity and expectation, yeah, could I'm be. slightly curious now. Yeah. But uh we shall see. it could shall be, see what, we shall could see be what a big be dumb disappointment. Could be yet another found footage film like uh um. Diaries or something.
1: Or like. it could be another or it could be another one like um Cloverfield, which is a bit of a classic. Could yeah. possibly be. Could
0: possibly be. So we'll keep an eye out for those, but uh, no others um sneaking up on the horizon at the moment. Not there was that I'm some, aware
1: of. For know? next
0: year there is an interesting one I've read about um and have a look into. Um, I didn't go that far ahead for next year. only went over this coming months? I only came upon this because um, my uh, my wife left a copy of SFX um, lying around, mm. and with it there is mention of uh, uh, I can never pronounce his name. Um, what's the name? Hellboy director Del Toro. What's his first name? Fernando Del Toro. No, not Fernando. You're you're thinking of the. Footballer. Chelsea striker.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> is it G- Gw Gweno- 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 What's that's no, no, it. Gweno Gweno it. I, um yeah, it's him. It's his next film. Um it's called Pacific Rim mm-hmm. which is a made me chuckle the first time I heard it, but I'm I'm coming across as very childish. Very I was gonna funny. say, this
1: guy's got a very young sense of humour.
0: And that's putting uh, it politely. Uh, never mind. Pacific Rim and again, um this is scheduled as, um, it's being billed as his tribute to Godzilla movies and uh, monsters. It's basically giant robots with humans in them fighting and attacking race of lizards. Massive budget. Director famous for impressive visuals and some pretty impressive films, even with a big Well, mean I mean, just look budget. at things like Pan's Labyrinth, for example. Pan's Labyrinth, yeah. um, fantastic film. Um... It looks like it could be promising. Hmm. Uh, stars amongst others, um, Idris Elba, you know, Luther from... Hmm. I, if I pronounced his name right? Is it Elba, Elba? Don't know. He's got a funny name, but the yep. guy who plays Luther in the TV series, hmm. um, he is starring in it. Um, it looks like it could be a bit of a laugh. Big, big, dumb fighting movie from from next year. It should be good. I'm quite excited about oh, it. If you're yeah. going
1: to go that far ahead, I mean... Um... In mind Peter Jackson's uh, looking at redoing, uh, he's doing a remake of the Dan Busters. What he's doing, Dan? Is that after the Hobbit? Um, he, it's in pre-production at the moment. They're currently building flying replica Lancasters in yeah, New Zealand. Interesting. Peter Do... Jackson, I only found out the other day, he's actually got a collection of vintage aircraft <laughs> and, right? and, re, and, and replicas. that He hires out for filmmakers. He's got First World War Fokkers and and he's building some half-sized Lancasters for filming. It's going to be filmed in New Zealand, apparently. Fair and, in advanced pre-production, yeah. He reckons he's going to make three
0: films out of The Hobbit, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, so the book is... Uh, horses
1: flogging and dead, Company. to mine. The book
0: is a fraction of the size of the first volume of Lord of the Rings. and You, go, you can
1: do The Hobbit in an afternoon if you, you sit down and cross through well,
0: it, yeah. There we go. But, um, yeah.
1: yeah, three films, apparently. Mm, as long as you don't try the steal I don't care. I'm not a <laughs> Tolkien fan.
0: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Right, shall we move on to the theme selection for this week? Yeah, you can
1: go first this
0: time. OK, yeah? the theme selection for this week is...
1: Alien alien Invasion. invasion. There we go.
0: <laughs> we couldn't uh, afford to hire a voiceover, guy. so <laughs> no. We just spoke at the same alien time. Alien Invasion.
1: There
0: we go. That just sounds like some kind of heavy breathing. Well, mode. I
1: don't know what we're going to do, morning, so you kick off and off. There we these. go. All right,
0: I am going to start with... Um, Life Force from 1985.
1: Have mm-hmm. you seen Life Force? Rings a bell. I might have done, but it doesn't I actually.
0: I've got a, a bizarre history with Life Force in that I became aware of this just for a bit of backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my family were the last family in the entire um, United Kingdom uh, to own a video recorder. All the way through the 80s, the golden. I'll
1: that, well, the possibly
0: yourself, the golden yeah. era of VHS. There are people who grew up watching their earliest memory. Mm-hmm is their parents putting on a a VHS video we didn't have a video throughout the whole of the 80s I think it was the mid 90s before we finally got one just as DVDs were coming so uh, this whole knowing films by video and um, it it was something that just never happened for me so I feel like I kind of missed out but whenever we went to visit a relative or whatever more often than not might end up watching a film this happened to be one of the trailers and trailers were quite important in those no, days. Like oh, still do. If
1: I've still got... People
0: learnt about films. One of the trailers at the beginning of whichever crappy film we ended up watching was a trailer for um, Life Force. Um, and it caused a bit of a stir. I was a living room family audience and um, obviously nobody had checked the content of the trailer because there was rather a lot of nudity and gore and violence in it. Um, but I didn't see the film until earlier this year. Um, just by perchance, I, uh, I was trying to think of films I might want to watch and I came by it and um, I watched it. So Life Force, directed by Toby Hooper. Oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and, 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 and Crocodile. Uh, I haven't seen Crocodile. Oh, didn't but, you uh, like it, sir. This was the follow up to Poltergeist. Up mm. to that point, he'd been making films on a minuscule budget that were punching above their weight, becoming cult successes. Um, the two most notable ones, obviously, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist. This was his much bigger budget follow up to Poltergeist. Had a budget somewhere in the region of 25 million, which, 1985, was a respectable budget for um, a sci fi film. The script was by Dan O'Bannon of Alien fame and also Dark Star and Heavy Metal the movie. Heavy Metal the movie, Um, based on 1976 novel The Space Vampires by Colin Wilson, starred somebody called Steve Railsback, who I looked through his list of previous films and couldn't see anything of any note at all. Um, Starred also French actress Mathilde May. And Peter Firth, aka Harry from Spooks, would you believe? <laughs> um, well, there you go. Uh, that was a surprise. Well, you before
1: you joined M. R. Six. That was long before. For those good, of you uh, listening uh, listening outside the UK, Spooks is a British spy TV series, spy drama. Um, yeah. Of which yeah. Carry on. There we go.
0: Steve Railsback plays Colonel Tom Carson, leader of a space shuttle mission investigating Halley's Comet. Now, 1985. That is probably my over my riding sort of. Um, Uh, astronomical um, memories that Halley's Comet was making its 76 year it was right about that time It turned. I
1: think it was a way back because it comes past every 76 years and comes back two years later and then that's it it was that time
0: I remember um, we had a teacher who was quite into uh, uh, her uh, astronomy and she mentioned Halley's Comet a lot and this I think was tied in to kind of capitalise with the bit of interest in Halley's Comet so, um, this space uh, space shuttle mission are going out, um, they're basically tailing the, the comet and uh, they discover that uh, hidden in the corona of the comet is a 150 mile long spacecraft of unknown extraterrestrial origin. And they, uh, they go and investigate and within the confines of the ship they find hundreds of rotting corpses of bat-like aliens. But they also find three, uh, naked, apparently humanoids, um, in some kind of suspended animation preserved in glass-like coffins. And ignoring all these stupid sci-fi rules that, uh, you don't take anything back to Earth, because it's gonna end up badly, they, of course, took all three of these, uh, uh, suspended animation humanoids back into their space shuttle, and off they set off, thinking they'd just, you know, made the greatest, uh, Discovery ever. As you do. As you do. Um, mission Control loses contact with the space shuttle, and it turns up looking pretty beat up in Earth's orbit some months later. They release um, another spaceship to carry out a rescue mission. Lo and behold, they find the interior of the space shuttle has been gutted by fire. Steve Rouseback is the only survivor... Oh, Colonel, Colonel Carlson. Only survivor... Um, And mysteriously, these three um, preserved humanoids have also managed to survive what looked like a raging inferno inside the space shuttle. Um, This is where it starts off really promising and then it starts to get a little bit silly. As these films Um, normally do. I think it's a plot device to um, to do the filming in London. But rather than go back to NASA, they head back to the. Are you it? No, 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 no. Where is it? I've got it written down because it's so bizarre. To be honest, <laughs> they go back to the European Space Research Centre in London. Um, I think it's because they were filming in London rather than America. Yeah. Uh, possibly that's where the money came from, so it had to be set in London. So they go back to the uh, this uh, space research centre in London. Unfortunately, it looks a bit naff. It looks like a nineteen fifty school with a chemistry lab. So uh, I'm afraid at that point you get the feeling possibly things are going to start going. That's where the for this out film. for the budget. Yeah. Quite possibly. The, the beginning, the the comet looks fantastic, but uh, um, it, they they turn out that these humanoids who they thought were kind of dead suddenly wake up, and lo and behold, they are actually a race of shape-shifting intergalactic vampires. But instead of drinking blood, um, they touch their victims and drain their life force out of them, uh, leaving them a withered, skeletal and apparently dead kind of husky shell of a human being. As you do. As you do. But wait! Uh, These uh, apparently dead, skeletal, withered husky shells then reanimate um, still hideous wrinkly skeletal, but very much alive and basically they have to touch another human being to draw
1: their life force and so on and so forth. So So it's like vampi vampiric space zombies. Kind of. Kind wow. of kind of. I've gotta watch that movie.
0: Um now, due to the inevitable um, ineptitude of the British military that guard this particularly crap um, space research laboratory in the middle of London, um, the aliens get loose and start converting the unsuspecting population of London into life force sapping with skeletal zombie-type <laughs> creatures. Um, and they look and move and attack like zombies. So they're trying to basically restore the numbers of their species by producing more of these sort of creature type things the film genre hops all the way through um i think it tries far too hard it starts off like a sci-fi it becomes a bit of a horror it becomes a, almost like a full on zombie film at one point um before returning to sci-fi at the end but it's it's a bit clumsy in its execution um it tries to be one type of film at a time rather than meshing them all together mm. so it falls a bit short there um, and possibly the worst thing about it is its portrayal of 80s London. Um, at the beginning, when they're doing the sci-fi bit, it looks really futuristic, and as you said, that's probably where the budget went. But um, 80s London looks more like 50s London, and um, there are some really terrible... Well, it was Tom and
1: Maggie Thatcher, for example, yeah.
0: But there are some terrible English stereotypes, and you know? all the generals are all very hoity-toity and sort of Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart-type caricatures yeah. and
1: such like and all the
0: others are all tricky cockney geezers, isn't it? yeah well thankfully there are no cockney geezers in it <laughs> otherwise oh it would that. get really silly um, but uh, um, the acting is fairly average all the way through but um, French actress Mathilde May who spends most of the film naked um, looks constantly hot the whole time yeah, Mathilde May naked
1: yeah.
0: Mathilde May naked The only notable performance in the film, but definitely a notable performance. Um, We mentioned the budget earlier 25 million. It failed miserably at the box office to make even half of that back. And it's worth noting Aliens came out a year later on a smaller budget and made a huge amount of money. Mm. The Terminator, same director, um, both James Cameron films came out the year before and again, even smaller budget. Um, looked much more professional and made a shed load of money and launched Schwarzenegger. Maybe it's studio. just that Hooper can't do sci-fi. Well, this was the thing. It's The story... The idea is good, but it's badly shot, badly directed, ill-conceived. Um, it's too graphic for the teen market and it's probably too twee for older audiences. So it, it missed any kind of a target audience... In the hands of a Cameron or a carpenter, I think it could have been a classic. As it is, it's got a couple of redeeming features. The very first time you see... um, I mean, the two big points of it are the sci-fi bit at the beginning and the first time that um, one of these kind of uh, aliens saps the life force from a human being it's genuinely horrific it really is uh quite good it's not quite up there with the alien chestburster but it's 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 attempted it and it falls a little bit short but it's still it takes you by surprise um it's one of those it's a close but no cigar but it costs you know probably four times as much money as a lot of the films that we're going to talk about that are probably superior um, it's become a bit of a cult favourite, and Mathilda May looks fantastic in it. Um, it's a good yarn, but it's more of a what could have been than well, what, what is. it is. Yeah. So that's my first one. That was uh, Life Force from
1: 1985. Okay. Well, I'm going to go stick. Were two years later this film came out. Eventually, um, Bad Taste, 1987. Peter Jackson's debut feature. Now, Peter Jackson, the guy that went on to do The Lord of the Rings, he's doing The Hobbit and won Oscars with Heavenly Creatures and all this sort of thing. Um, never let it be forgotten, his first film was uh, shot on a budget of about 4500 New Zealand dollars over the over course of four or five years, basically around his little hometown and his backyard. Basically, the plot line of this fantastic little low-budget classic is uh, it concerns four guys known as the Astro Investigation and Defence Service, or Aids, <laughs> um, who are scrambled Sorry. by the Aids. Yeah. If oh, at the dear. beginning you've got this kind of uh, bit where the guy goes, "Oh, I'll call the boys," and they've got Aids on the phone, he presses it and they get scrambled. <laughs> but um, uh, right, basically, um, Aids have been scrambled to investigate the fact that there's this small town in New Zealand whose entire population has vanished. Um, so they jump into a beat-up old uh, 4 Capri or three of them do, and go off to investigate. One member of the team, uh, Derek, Playboy Peter Jackson himself, is already there. Cut a long story short, because I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of the finer points of the plot. Uh, basically, the town has been attacked by a uh, guy, called, um, a load of aliens under the, instru- under the command of a guy called Colonel Crumb. That's the name of the alien, um, who uh, basically runs a pangalactic fast food franchise and is uh, harvesting human meat. This is a pilot batch. If this sells well, they're going to come down and like uh, farm Earth for human meat to sell us on burgers and pizzas across the universe. We're getting all soil and green again here. <laughs> yeah. With lots of blood, guts and gore. Um, huge, huge amounts of gun gunfights and explosions. Aids go in, fight the aliens. Uh, there's a lovely vomit-drinking scene at one point. Um, guess what I've done? You've drunk a bowl of chuck. <laughs> uh, is one of the lines in it. Um, Was that your New Zealand accent? Yeah, that's my bad impersonation of New Zealand accent, yeah. That's staying in the podcast. Yeah, and... Um, yeah and basically, I'm well, not going really, no no spoilers here, but just to make heavy shoes filmed over four years in and around Jackson's hometown of Peruka Bay, near Wellington, New Zealand, and the cast is mainly Peter Jackson and his family and friends uh that also includes the crew uh the alien masks, for example, were made by his mum where she baked the latex in her oven uh His dad helped him build the guns that they use, which is basically uh, lumps of scrap iron, weld it together, that people used have to sort of like, shake and go, Aah! and then they dub the gun muzzle flashes and that on uh, with the machine gun sound later. And there's actually one sequence where Peter Jackson still takes the piss out of the fact he's doing that by shaking a gun and going, while the alien <laughs> falls, falls down in front of him and then gets up and he realises he hasn't really been shot. But, um, it, but it's really, really cleverly done. There's one sequence where... Um, uh, Peter Jackson still plays two parts in the film. He plays Derek, who's the uh, one of the Aids team, and he also plays Roger, who's one of the uh, who's kind of like the uh, sort of like one of the aliens. And there's a sequence where he fights himself on a clifftop. That was filmed using uh, dummies and doubles over uh, two, with, with two with two film sets show it's two literally think of two years apart so that he could grow a beard and bulk up to play Roger after he's filmed himself fighting a himself with Derek. So, as you expect from an early Jackson film, there is blood, guts, gore, brains going all over the place, um, bits of seagulls are pecking people's eyes out, uh, people getting sledgehammers through their heads. Can I ask? Exploding <laughs> sheep.
0: The um the aliens that get killed by the good guys yeah are they victims of AIDS
1: yeah I suppose you could say they are <laughs> I just um,
0: I don't know whether that will end up in the
1: podcast yeah but anyway just a superb film um, anyone that sort of like uh, thinks that Peter Jackson is just about big budget movies would watch it but a couple of interesting facts first of all it was um, the Australians banned it outright. Because of the uh, sheer brutality and the blood and the guts and the gore and the violence, for Australia to ban anything—that's pretty heavy um,
0: going, isn't well, it? Well,
1: uh, it caused it caused such a row in in the state of Queensland that um, the banning of this film because it was being a huge because it was shown at the Cannes Film Festival and became a huge cult success worldwide, and then Australians went and banned it, and that caused such a row that it led to the resignation. And uh, sacking and reorganisation of the entire uh, Queensland State Film Censorship Board, <laughs> and uh, Peter Jackson, um, you know, because a lot of these directors, like make these low-budget films, don't uh, miso- disown their early work. You know, I didn't do that. No, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was my brother. You yeah. know, but Peter Jackson um, has got two sequels in mind that he said at some point he would like to remake. He would like to actually go ahead and make at some point. <laughs> Um, uh, Bad Taste 2, where, because at the end of Bad Taste 1, without giving too much of the plot away, Derek ends up getting going off to the aliens' planet to seek revenge for what they've done to Earth. And he's like, Aids going to rescue Derek. And then 3 would involve the aliens chasing Aids back to Earth and the, and the, and the complete annihilation of the city of New Zealand, of Wellington in New Zealand. <laughs> Um, still out on on video. Um, it's uh, it still gets shown at film festivals and, uh, and that from time to time. Um, just well worth watching. Never seen it? I I think I probably
0: watched these in the wrong order because I've seen um, Brain Dead and Meet the Feebles and then I watched Bad Taste. Yeah. And obviously it's it is a, a much cheaper film and it it shows it. And I, 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 possibly it's about time that I watched it again. Maybe I'd have a, a bit of a reappraisal. But I remember thinking it was a bit daft. Um, it
1: is daft. It is very silly, but it's enjoyably silly. It's not doesn't fall into so bad. It's good because it doesn't pretend to be anything other than a low budget bunch of mates mucking about making a film. And also for any budding filmmaker out there, it just shows you what with a bit of determination, a bit of ingenuity and a really low budget you can achieve fair enough I mean it did for Peter Jackson yeah and now look at the guy so uh, those of you port your cameras around and start making low budget splatter movies yeah. in uh, 20 years time you too can be stretching the Hobbit out to <laughs> <from laughs> three films <laughs> Uh And have your collection of vintage aeroplanes. There
0: you go, absolutely. Okay, next. No worries. My second choice is The Arrival from 1996, um, written and directed by David... And I'll try and pronounce his surname. David Toy. Um, This is quite ironic, actually. Um, Returning to the uh, pitch-black Chronicles of Riddick uh, theme... He was the director of both of those films. Oh, right. I thought I'd recognise him. Um, so, yeah, other than those two, I wasn't really familiar with his uh, his past. This stars Charlie Sheen, uh, Terry Polo and Richard Schiff. Mainly, it's a Charlie Sheen vehicle. It's an interesting period, Charlie Sheen. Um, he'd kind of had his mainstream success of the 80s and a bit of success in the early 90s. And then his career had died on its ass. Um, it obviously rejuvenated later with his involvement in Two and a Half Men, but this was uh, kind of a wilderness period uh, Mm. for him. Um, He sports a ridiculous goatee beard in this. Uh, I'd never seen Charlie Sheen with any facial hair before, but uh, if you do want to see Charlie Sheen with some ridiculous facial hair, this is the film to watch. Um, I totally missed this at the point of release. Um... Uh, I only came by it by trawling through a list of 90 sci-fi films on the Internet Movie Database whilst looking for something I hadn't seen, and it was reasonably highly rated, and I had a look, and uh, so this is the write-up for it. Essentially, um, you do have to... By virtue of the fact that uh, Charlie Sheen is in it, you have to believe the pretense that he is also one of the world's leading radio astronomers. (laughs) Um, I think your sense of... uh, disbelief has already, already Mm -hmm. emerged there. (laughs) Yeah, he's a, one of the world's leading radio astronomers working for SETI, the search for extraterrestrial life. Yeah, intelligence, uh, absolutely. Um, he, uh, uh, this was set at the time when SETI was quite big news. It was, uh, it was quite a quite a big project a couple of
1: films came out about then they they um, tried to cash in on it it
0: was contact it was all round about that time I'll I'll get on to those in just a second because I think one of the reasons um, the film kind of stayed below the radar was because of the time and the other films that came out there but essentially um, he works for this project that intercepts a signal of extraterrestrial origin um, he reports this enthusiastically to his bosses, um, thinking he's just made the most important discovery in modern human history. Only to find that his superiors try to cover up the discovery, they murder his assistant. Charlie Sheen gets fired from his job and blacklisted from finding work for any other similar agency. Um, and he smells a massive rat and decides to go undercover and get to the bottom of it and find out what's going on. As you would. As you would. Um, there's some surreptitious breaking into his former workplace, um, and he uncovers that the signal is actually a two way communication. There are aliens already on the earth, and they're talking to their mates up in the mothership who are on their way. oh my, I mean you got you mean they're here already they're already there oh shit there you go it's uh, it's all sort of uh, it all gets a bit weird like that they're already there in place
1: sort of like in black it, it's, it. it's
0: it's not it predates men in black, I believe. Mm. Um, He then uncovers that the origin of the outgoing signal um, to an American-built high-tech power station facility over the border in Mexico uh, and find out that a huge um, network of these power stations has been built all over the world and they conceal secret underground bases of these uh, race of shape-shifting aliens. More shape-shifting aliens. Bloody shape-shifting aliens. They get everywhere they Build power stations, but why do they build power stations? These power stations are actually a uh, it's an illicit plot to release copious amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, accelerating global warming. Um and the main reason for that is they are trying to create a comfortable living environment for their uh, mates on the mothership who are vastly approaching. They are conditioning the, oh, the planet falling for Earth. Earth. They are now little interesting
1: sense. little aside, somewhere around. I've got an old comic book from the 1960s, a British kind of sci-fi comic called Jet Ace Logan. Okay. It was a space pilot for the RAF in the, you know, 2020, whatever it is. But it's written from the 1960s and there's a, one of the plots that Jet Ace Logan foils. is aliens trying to do a very similar
0: thing. Well, it's, yeah. in sci-fi, um, with a bit of environmental theme. Mm. I mean, that's quite a common theme. They, um... Uh, from the point that it became quite clear that the various gases and crap were pumping into the atmosphere were shagging the planet up, um, sci-fi... Allegedly, Sir so Jeremy Clarkson. Allegedly, okay. Sir so Jeremy Absolutely. <laughs> um, sci-fi has kind of cottoned on to this um, in quite a big way. Um, obviously, you have to question, in a sci-fi where the aliens are doing it, are the aliens a metaphor for
1: humans? In which case... Mm. Well, normally, well, if i to come oh. on to my next selection, you'll, you'll see. Yeah. Aliens are normally a metaphor for something. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: I think you'll find that in my next choice as well. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so nasty aliens are um, attempting to pollute the planet and Charlie Sheen, as you can probably guess, has to uh, attempt to foil this plot. And I'm, save the day. And save the day. I won't go into what happens at the end. Just to say that the the film also failed to drum up a stir at the box office. It was, um, funnily enough, it had the same budget that um, Life Force had. Only uh, a good sort of ten, eleven years later, where it was considered a lower a lower budget mm. film. It also failed to to make any money whatsoever. It kind of just disappeared. It's become a bit of a cult success now, but it was completely dwarfed by the phenomenon that was uh, Independence Day. Uh, I can remember within, um, probably within months of this coming out, Independence taking came out, Mars Attacks came out, Event Horizon came out, Contact came out shortly after, mm. it just disappeared under a glut of other sci-fi, yeah, big, bigger look, names. Yeah, because um, other
1: ones, because uh, Starship Troopers were in about the same time, A side, bit later it?
0: Starship Troopers mm-hmm. was, but, um, this one failed to, failed to, to gather anything. Um... For me, it's vastly better than Independence Day, which is a film. Oh, I, Independence Day I saw is... Independence Day at the cinema, so and I. it was. Um, it looked impressive, but it was a big dumb. I'm going to dumb. do.
1: I'll have a Independence Day on my last choice.
0: Absolutely, I like it much more than Independence Day. Um, it's not got the sprawling scale. Um, it had about an eighth of the budget of Independence Day, but it still looks passable. There's a few dodgy bits of primitive 90s CG, but it's good fun, some notable moments of action and humour, a um, bit of an environmental subplot, as we discussed, and it's dated really well. I would recommend it. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Oh, excellent. So that was again? That was The Arrival from 1990. The Arrival. The Arrival. Okay. Well, come on, next one, we're going to jump back to 1958 and a film that is deemed an all-time classic. We're talking about something that crawls and rolls and slithers right across the floor. It is, of course, The Blob. The Blob. A number of remarkable facts about it before I go into the plot. Uh, it was Steve McQueen's first major film, and Steve McQueen is the only actor of any note in it. Um, some of the rest of the cast... Went on to have bit parts in the 60s and 70s in US TV series and soap operas, but nothing beyond that. The director is a guy called Irvin, Ye- Irvin Shorty Yeworth. Um, he only ever did about five or six films, all of which were B movies, The Blob being his best known one, but other ones include Dinosaurus, The Only Way Out, and The Four Dimensional Man so sounds like a bit of a. I've
0: laugh. never seen
1: that. I looked that up and I thought, well, that's something I've got to track down. Um, he, but he did make several thousand other films, either corporate movies for American corporations. Did he literally make that many? Yes. We talking We're talking things? shorts. He had a company that churned these things out. This, and he had a brief foray to make him cinema movies. He wanted to make take so seriously. He made say so he made a handful of films in the late fifties, early sixties, and then went back. And he only died a few years ago. He made religious educational films for various American Christian organisations, and uh, he made government information films. You name it, he made it. He made it, yeah. Um, jobby filmmaker, TV adverts, the lot. Um, but say, so, but the Blob is probably his only real feature film of note. Um basically, if you haven't seen it, the plot line is a uh, Steve McQueen and his girlfriend are out one night going down Lovers, laid in the car for a bit of hours of your father, as you do in these these films, you know. They see they see a uh, shooting star, a meteor coming over, and they decide they're gonna go and investigate, because they see it land, they see an explosion where it lands over the behind the trees. Meanwhile the farmer whose yard it comes down into comes out and finds the crater and finds this thing in the bottom of the crater. As you do, pokes it with a stick and then this thing creeps open and this big lump of protoplasmic jelly crawls up the stick, stick and goes all over his arm. At that point, Steve McQueen and girlfriend show up, see the guys in distress, take him to the hospital where basically they keep him in overnight over observation with no one in the building. Observation with no one in the building? Yeah. But it's a 50s B movie, so... And basically, this thing slimes all over the bloke, absorbs him. He's been blobbed. Yeah, it escapes. Gets bigger. The more people it eats, the bigger it gets. The bigger the blob gets. Terrorizes this small town in Pennsylvania. Does the blob separate, or is it no, still it's a just blob? one big blob? Just one big, <laughs> big ever spreading blob
0: in all directions. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. Um, is it sentient, or you never find out? It okay. just eats people. Uh, it eats a diner full of people. There's a classic scene where it gets into the projection gallery of a cinema and oozes out through the.
0: So it seems to have no other motivation other than to eat. to eat and multiply yeah. and become bigger.
1: And basically, yeah, they called in the army and they tried blowing it up, but that just breaks into little bits that come back together again. And I'll, I'm not going to give the ending away. Um, watch it yourself if What's, you... um,
0: I mean, obviously, this is from the 50s. Yeah, did it what sort of cultural impact did the blob have? Did it terrify audiences and well, masses um.
1: The whole point of a lot of the 50 sci-fi stuff, the aliens that invade, or in this case, this spreading amorphous blob, is uh, those damn commies. I was wondering if this was commies. Yeah, and the fact that the blob is red and gets redder as it absorbs the people and takes their blood into its system. Now, this is interesting. It gets redder, I and, redder, not redder not and redder and redder. did not the
0: original version of the blob was in colour, so it's actually in colour and it's red. Yes. Right. And this is from a filmmaker who made government films as well. Yes. Ah, OK. You see?
1: And basically, it's it's just good fun, you know. If if you, you can get you can get all you know, sort of like uh, talk about communist and Cold War paranoia. Uh, we, do, we have to work on one level, but it's just a good kind of good muck about sci-fi B movie, yeah. Um, although the other interesting facts, the title track, which I alluded to earlier, Beware of the Blob was actually written by a couple of uh, jobbing songwriters in Hollywood at the time, by the name of Burt Bacharach and Hal David. I might have heard of them. Yep, well they became some of the biggest names in the music business. And the score was by another uh, guy called Ralph Ralph Carmichael, who was again a jobbing composer of Hollywood movies, um, who later got religion and ended up writing hymns for Billy Graham and other travelling preachers. That's uh, that's bizarre. <laughs> there is a sequel called Beware of the Blob, directed by Larry Hagman, J.R. from Dallas. <laughs> he directed the film and at the time of the big uh, who shot the Shot J R um uh, kind of thing going on, it was released on VHS under the tagline, This is the film that J.R. shot. <laughs> Oh, no, that's treacherous. Um And then there's a uh, remake uh, by uh, Chuck Russell, came out in 1988. It's not without merit. It's a pretty... You know, I have seen that one. Like, it looks... It looks better... Mm. Um, There's it, it looks... a bit more blood, guts, and gore. There's a sequence where a woman gets her hands shit. The blob comes up a waste disposal unit and drags a woman's eye and yeah, it rips the kind of thing uh, The blob seems to be a bit nastier in the. Yeah. The, 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 the... And uh, of course, Chuck Russell did Nightmare on Elm Street 3, um, the Jim Carrey film The Mask, uh, The Hearse and Hell Night, amongst other films, yeah. Um, and interestingly, uh, it's led to a uh, annual film festival. Of horror and sci-fi B movies. There is a Blobfest. There is. It's called Blobfest. <laughs> it's held every year, normally round about the round about the beginning of July, in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which was where the original Blob film was filmed. And it kind of uh, they they show B movies and classic horror films and sci-fi films and that. But it leads up to on the last night a uh, cinematic presentation of the Blob in the in the cinema where the uh, Movie theater where the sequence where the blob oozes out through the projection slits is filmed, and at the bit where the the blob oozes out through the projection slits, they cut the film and you all just run out screaming, have a beer, then go in for the rest of the film.
0: (laughs) They don't actually. Try and simulate a blob. No, they don't. They just cut the film. That would just be too
1: much. Yeah.
0: That sounds like such a laugh. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And um,
1: (laughs) and for a sort of low-budget movie by a first-time director, again, you know, and the fact that it launched the career of Steve McQueen because it did become quite a substantial surprise hit worldwide. And then especially when it, uh, through cinema release... And then it really started gaining cult status when it started getting taken on for TV. It became really popular on TV shows. I, mean, I can remember what it used to be on TV nearly every month when I was a kid, back in the 60s. So, But yeah, that's The Blob, 1958. If you haven't seen it, go do so. Fantastic. Um, now,
0: I know both of our final choices, we're basically going to have a... We're going to uh, worship at the altar of John Carpenter. John
1: Carpenter.
0: Um, and, well, I'll, I'll start with mine. one. Well, mine is a later film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yours is probably uh, regarded as one of one of his very, very best. Well, yeah,
1: well, that one's is not without merit. My
0: final choice of the theme selection for Alien Invasion is John Carpenter's They Live from 1988... Uh, written and directed by Carpenter himself, and I think he may have even uh, scored it. He as does; well. he scores
1: most of his own um,
0: films. I, I only found that out with his suits. Like a
1: dumb, a dumb.
0: They all sound very similar, but they're all they're all really good. I, I, yeah. So, you know, exceptionally talented bloke. Um, in the same breath, we'll mention uh, the thing, which is inevitably your choice coming up. The Fog, Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, Escape from New York...
1: Escape from L.A. Escape from LA Dark, don't forget Dark Star. Dark is first Star. One.
0: And, you know, an incredible... Um, What's the one
1: about the devil worshippers?
0: Oh, uh, I think that's Prince of Darkness.
1: Prince of Darkness, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, an incredible... Even Ghost um, of Mars is not without it, merit. Yeah, absolutely. An unbelievable CV of films. It stars Rowdy Roddy Piper... Famous American uh, wrestler. Very from the famous 70s. American wrestler from the seventies and the eighties, right up to the nineties. He still kept on going, he, he kept on going, absolutely. Um and somebody called Keith David, who you will probably mention Yes, ben, I'm gonna mention Keith David. Um Rowdy Roddy Piper plays an unemployed drifter moving from city to city, trying to find work wherever he can within what appears to be a serious financial downturn. Sound familiar?
1: I don't know, I was just coming down from Birmingham, I don't know what
0: it's like there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought it was a bit of a power, I watched this a few weeks ago and...
1: It was on film four, wasn't it?
0: Uh, I, I I actually saw, um, no, I, I think I saw a, a DVD of it. i watched it on film um, four a couple of weeks back, so... Uh, well, there we go. But um, I, it just struck a chord that it was set in a serious mm. financial downturn, considering how things are at the moment. Rowdy Roddy Piper uncovers a bizarre group of apparent subversives and spies on them, um, and comes across a stockpile of what seem to be ordinary sunglasses. Only when he puts them on, it's suddenly revealed to him that the whole world as he knew it is actually being controlled via subliminal messaging by a race of skeletal aliens. The skeletal alien theme... Seems to be running through all of my films. Uh, These are uh, skeletal aliens. You can only see what they look like when you put the glasses on. Um, The glasses also let you see through all the advertising billboards to the real messages below. Um, and most importantly, they let you see which people are aliens and which are you know the yeah, disguised humans. Yeah, I remember
1: because they say it's actually really effective because there's one bit where he puts it on the big Coca-Cola sign just absolutely the word
0: conform, conform, consume, obey. They're yeah. all over the thing, and it goes black and white when you put yeah. the, when he puts the glasses on. Uh, it's a really, really clever. I mean, it totally transforms the look of the film mm. and the whole feel of the film. At that point, it could just be a you know, any old sort of 80s drama, and then it suddenly becomes uh, a full-on sci-fi fest. Roddy, 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 Roddy then makes it his mission to expose the illicit alien invasion that's going on and bring a whole load of whoop-ass down on them and the way that only a WWF wrestler can. Um... Uh, Roddy Piper at the time was still a famous wrestler, as we mentioned, and seems like a really curious choice for a leading man, considering the more sort of subtle actors that uh, Carpenter chose. Um, like I Kurt saw Russell. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Now Kurt Russell, it's interesting. We you, talk, you know earlier. I heard films,
1: somewhere, I mean maybe you can confirm or deny this, that Kurt Russell's originally in the frame to Play League. Now I, I did look into this. According yeah. to an interview with John Carpenter, he
0: says he met uh, Roddy Piper at WrestleMania 3 the year before. Hmm. And from the moment he met him, he said he was the man for the job. Um I think I mean Roddy really Roddy Piper is Absolutely eighties man. He's there with the big, muscly frame the and the big mullet. The big mullet I was about to mention, <laughs> and he he's playing a manual labourer in the film, and he looks the part. Whereas uh I, and he's loud, he's brash. And the, the phrase that uh, John Carpenter used to describe is: unlike most Hollywood actors, he had life written all over him. He does yeah. look pretty beat up.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: you know he's been through. You know, Andre the fucking giant and all sorts of shit <laughs> you know, well,
1: you know he was I mean? choreographed the guys absolutely,
0: choreographed. Anyway, he absolutely. but um i think carpenter uh i mean it's a, a very brave choice he wasn't a renowned actor at that point mm. he's since gone on to make a sub-career of exceptionally low budget mostly cop movies <laughs> mm. where he gets to to bring down another variety of uh former wrestler will pass on bad guys um Nothing in the same league as the uh, as as they live, but um, he is, as far as I'm concerned, the best thing about the film. His performance is an absolute juggernaut. Um, he looks the part. He plays the part. He's gloriously over the top. Um, it's really good. Um, there are two notable moments in the film that have gone down in movie folklore there um an in- there's an incredibly um long choreographed five and a half minute fight scene between Roddy Piper and Keith David in an alleyway involving much uh, battering of heads against walls, pavement, dumpsters and a trash can lid. Um, and then there is... Uh, uh, have you, you've, you've seen this film. Yeah, I've you? seen it quite a few uh, times, yeah. Everybody talks about the, the fight scene. It just goes on and on and they batter the living crap out of each other. and It's it's excellent. The other one is the immortal line delivered by uh, Piper in the bank. Um, I've come here today to do two things, to kick ass and to chew bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs> uh, when I saw that, I almost wet myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it obviously made you cough yeah. at that point. Yeah. It almost made me wet myself. Um, one of the funniest lines in uh, sci-fi and cinema I've ever seen. And it's delivered so
1: brilliantly. Um, but I, mean, I think that's part of the genius of Carpenter. He can do a really good, serious sci-fi action film um even horror movie yeah but he can still keep a kind of even things like big trouble in little china Absolutely. which is quite a lightweight kind of action movie but he can still keep an edge to it and a bit of tongue-in-cheek humor so it, it doesn't take itself s- that seriously but keeps itself quite as serious enough to make it so it doesn't become a parody of itself that's well, what i'm perhaps, saying yeah? um Now, the most
0: interesting thing about this film, while on the surface it's a big, dumb, sci-fi action fest, um, not at all. It's a blatant and damningly vicious social-political statement about the time, Um, namely Ronald Reagan's money-and-power-obsessed America of the late 80s, um, where the poorer working classes are struggling to make ends meet, and the yuppie cash-rich ruling classes... Um, are draining themselves in
1: gluts of greed and mass consumerism. Mm. It was part of a trilogy that Carpenter did because I know that Prince of Darkness was another one, but they all deal with the same kind of theme, the kind of themes. I they do. I and th- I can't th- remember what the third one was. Not absolutely sure. I know
0: that these themes run through. They live seems to be the most it's certainly the most uh, overtly political one mm. of his films i've seen i mean it's alluded to in a lot of the previous films um but it just looks like he he took a look at the world around him and just thought i'm going to you know i'm going to make this completely blatant and the, the whole mm. anti-consumerism and, i mean you remember the 80s very well it was a pretty shocking decade for that kind of greed and
1: No, it was Um, nasty. Nasty, It was pretty nasty. nasty. nasty.
0: And it's it's really...
1: Fucking thatcherites over there. Don't get me started. I won't get you started. Um, We're doing sci-fi films, not gritty. We'll have to do one of that gritty films from the 80s. Absolutely. I don't
0: think he's ever done anything so blatantly uh, political and... uh, such a blatant social commentary since and it's probably the strongest one he did up Mm. to that point so it's a bit of a watershed moment and it also marks the end of a spectacular run of critical and commercial successes dating back to the mid 70s and I mean rather unfortunately I don't think Carpenter has come close to matching any of that string of films certainly not in box office performance and like I said a lot of the films that came after had a bit of they all had some merit, like yeah. you say, of vampires and vampires. Uh, vampires, I really did yeah. like. Um, and I really like Escape from LA, I must
1: admit. Oh, Escape from LA? I think that's a better film than Escape from New York, personally, but. Quite possibly. That's because it's got Pam Greer in it, and I love it, <laughs> um, it got
0: absolutely panned Escape from LA, but I think that was really unfair. But, and it lost. People had done it. A lot of these films, about. They they lost a bit of money, so we stopped being box office. Um, he went into semi-retirement after Ghost of Mars he did one in 2010 which I mean the guy doesn't need to do films no, his he? legacy is assured um so he does what he wants, and mm. when he feels like making a film,
1: he makes he a He also film. did; he uh, was involved with the um, American the TV series Masters, Masters of Horror, yeah. And Tales an the American Tales from the Crypt was it with the crypt I key, whatever? I don't know about Tales from the Crypt, but because he plays the dungeon to... keeper, you know the zombie ca- character that links the TV series together, was that here? Are you sure that's, that's him himself, yeah. When um, he was executive producer of the series, if I
0: remember right, um, yeah, he was something to do with Master Horror. Apparently, that kind of got him back into the filmmaking mm. after a long break. But, I mean, even if he never does a film of any note ever again, he's got this massive, um, almost ten-film mm. legacy. It's more high-quality, influential movies than most mainstream yeah. directors ever managed. I mean, at
1: the time, you know, when... Sort of like, because the other one I really admire from that period, the similar kind of thing, Cronenberg. Cronenberg, I think yeah. he takes himself far too seriously. He did days? in the end, but he had his earlier stuff, like Shivers and Scanners and possibly um, maybe a, a future theme selection, I think. Yes, I suggest, uh, suggest that. I've been
0: meaning to do a bit of a Cronenberg catch-up, but um, that's They Live. Like I said, thought it was good at the time that i seen it, and I saw it fairly recently, I must admit. I I I completely, like I stated earlier, not having a, a video in the age of being a lot younger then it. it, probably bypassed me completely. Um, it's since become one of my favourite films, I think. It's um, certainly the best film I've seen in a long, long time, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, that is They Live... Uh, what was the year? Was that 1988,
1: did 1988. I say? 1988. OK, I'm going to stay with Carpenter. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to rewind back 1982 with the classic The Thing. I couldn't do... When we said we'd do this one, we'd do Alien Invasions and alien monsters on earth i couldn't not do the thing this is one of my all-time favorite films um i saw this at the cinema which is a little sad i'll relate to in a bit um and i've i've still i've got through about three vhs copies and a dvd copy of this and it's still one that i drag out about once every couple of months with nothing else i Tell you i'll stick the thing on you know so it's a film that i become intimately connected with yeah basically it's uh, uh based on a uh 1938 John W. Campbell novel called Who Goes There, um, and is actually a closer version to the book than the uh, 1951 uh, version of Think of Another World. The screenplay for, this, for the 80s Carpenter version was actually uh, written by Bill Lancaster, son of Bert. Fair enough. Right, Basically, the plot line is you've got an American Antarctic base and one morning they're doing, they're going around doing as you do on Antarctic bases. They're battling down for a big storm that's coming in when all of a sudden this new uh, Norwegian-powered helicopter, New Zealand-owned helicopter, <laughs> they're checking you, you know, New Norwegians at the end. <laughs> it's powered by <between> Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Norwegian-owned helicopter comes flying over. There's a bloke hanging out the side with a rifle, taking pot shots at a sled dog. That's that runs straight to the American camp and starts licking up the uh one of the one of the Yanks. Um helicopter lands, bit of a gunfight breaks out as Americans tend to do. They shoot first, ask questions later helicopter blows up, Norwegians are killed. They're left with this dog. Rather than try and work out why the New Zealanders are trying to why the New Zealanders Norwegians are trying to kill this dog. They kind of chuck it in with their sled dogs and leave it at that. Um as you do, then the dog turns out to be shape-shifting alien. Uh, again, with the shape-shifting? They're not skeletal this time. No, you've seen the thing, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah, it's this kind of shoots out. There's that horrible, horrible sequence where this dog just kind of bursts open and tendrils kind of fly out and start of strangling the other dogs and sucking them in with yeah? you, which again, I'll come to that bit in a minute they go in they start incinerating the dogs work out in the shapeshitting uh Kurt Russell and the captain shoots off to who's played by Wilfred Brimley who's um, also known for the cocoon China Syndrome and a uh, recurrent character in the Whartons um, okay not his greatest moment no. but uh, <laughs> he you know they go off on the New Zealand the New, Norwegian base you've got so, New Zealanders on I mean, the base Jackson, so Peter man. Jackson yeah from the Norwegian base find it's been Nuked, oh, we got sort of burnt out and that, but they find the uh, a video player which says these Norwegians have, have basically found a fly saucer in the ice and dug up this alien that's absorbed them as, as it happens. Um, without giving the end away, uh, lots of paranoia. Who is the alien pretending to be? Is it me? Is it you? Is it the bloke next door? Um, lovely sequence where uh, this guy's head falls off the table, grows legs, and scuttles out. Yes. Great film, fantastic kind of what's going to happen next ending, leaving yourself open for a sequel that's never been made. Yeah, cast includes I mentioned Wilfred Bramley, Keith David uh, from The Thing, also was in The Platoon in Armageddon, and Armageddon. an English actor, David Moffat, who was in uh, the American TV series Logan's Run, and then the film Bonfire of the Vanities, when he did a bit of serious acting, uh, filmed in British Columbia. And the cast and crew went out and built the set together as a team building exercise in the summer. Then they went out again when it was freezing cold and after it had been snowed in and lived in there. And then they started filming what, you know, so they got, you know, formed the storming and forming of the group and that, yeah? Cool. Um, There has been a prequel made by Norwegian director Mathijs van Helgen it's pronounced. That was a that was a good attempt. I'm yeah. quite impressed with that. Um, I've not seen it, but apparently it's uh, it's. I was had mixed reviews, and it's supposed to, and it's the story of the Norwegians finding the crashed helicopter, and it apparently ends up with them flying off chasing the dog in the helicopter sort of thing. He was given, uh, John Carpenter's permission to uh, to do it. Yeah, I've heard mixed things about. Yeah, that. so have I. So
0: twenty odd years between the two. Is it you know different filming techniques? Yeah. It doesn't look like. The thing, and it—you know what I mean. I think they—I'm not
1: they saying they it. So set I can't themselves it.
0: up for a bit of a panning, I reckon. Yeah. Trying to take that on, clever idea. Well, I
1: mean, I, th- I mean, I only realised it was a prequel, and I did so. I thought it was just a just re- a crappy remake. No, at least they didn't yeah. quite. Try yeah. It, but I mean, when you start pissing
0: around with prequels, you start adding backstory to a film that is a classic. Yeah. You're gonna fuck it up, aren't you? Yeah. So, I haven't seen it, but I don't know whether I want to, to be honest.
1: No, same here, you know. So, if anyone listening out there wants to leave a little comment on the comment box below on the blog saying, yes, you should see it, or no, you shouldn't, please let us know. You'll you, you're influence our viewing things. But like I said, it's one of my favourite films. I first saw it at the cinema when it came out, and I took a, a, a girl I was seeing at the time to see it. It's not a deep movie, really. <laughs> no, it's not. But she said she wanted to see a horror movie. And I, And it was my choice of film, so I suggested that we go and see The Thing. And what you do, do is sitting at the cinema, the old ABC, down where the beer killer is now, down in uh, Broadmead. And I've got my arm around her, and she's fine until you've got that bit where the dog splits open. And next thing, I've got her head, it comes right across my chest, and she drags my hand over her face. And I could feel her kind of moving my fingers apart, so I could peer through it. And as you ah, going, ah, ah, ah. I could feel her, like wince every time anything horrible happened on the. Because there's, there's some quite gory, nasty sequences in the thing. It's quite graphic, isn't it? Yeah, and every time one of those sequences went, I could hear her wincing and like kind of almost dry heaving. And I'm thinking, oh my god, yeah, it was only my second date with this particular young girl, and um, I was only young myself, so I don't think. Just, but, um, just as an aside. Hang on a minute. Sorry. So, it came out the cinema, and I apologised profusely. You go, no, that was brilliant. You can you go and see any more like that? <laughs> yeah, fantastic reaction.
0: Yeah. Would you say that is uh, possibly your all-time worst choice for a date film, of all the ones? I, I, no, no. I, no. Uh, I took um no. for our first date. Uh, me and a, a young lady, we went to see Children of Men, which is really not. A Not a date film. That's a
1: heavy film.
0: That's a heavy film. And it was a first date as well. It was her choice. We looked through a list of films. And uh, Children of Men was the only one that was showing that looked even vaguely interested. I will go and see Children of Men. Brilliant film, but not a first date film. Well, I
1: suppose it depends. Because if you've got a... If you're the girl you're going out with is a bit of a movie buff, that could be a great choice, you know? Now, the worst film I've ever... Date film I've ever been taken to... um, it would get it was, I let her choose the movie, and uh, this particular girl took me to see Cannon and Ball in the Boys in Blue. Oh my God! I put it put it this way: as I came out, I I I was. It started out. There was about twenty people. In, there was about twenty people in the cinema. We were the only two that survived the whole film. People were walking out of it. That's it's it was, it's a. It's a, one of the worst films I've ever seen. Not the worst cool. film I've ever seen. Not I went up sur- to the manager because I knew the manager at the cinema. At the this was at the Odeon, <laughs> down at the bottom of Union Street here in Bristol. I went up and cheekily said, "Right, I want my money back." He gave it to me. Wow. <laughs> because he said, "Sorry about that." He goes, "Yeah, not, yeah." That's the worst film I've ever seen.
0: Let's not sully the uh, the memory of uh, the thing.
1: In no, for but bit. like I said, the thing. John Carpenter, nineteen eighty two. All-time classic. Um, if you haven't seen it, do so, because uh, you've missed out.
0: I've got to say, my favourite bit of that film, in terms of just the tension, it's not even the reveal at the end, but it's when they're testing the... Oh, with blood. the
1: flamethrower and the bit of wire and the bits of blood.
0: So they figure out that um, even if... They take blood from all of them. They know yeah. at least one of them is probably uh, uh, been... Possessed by the alien or whatever. It's not and they're real...
1: suspecting the commander, aren't they, at that particular point? Yeah, yeah, it's
0: never the person you quite suspect. But they, yeah, they have to, this fucking chair. They figure if they separate the blood from the other one, yeah. if they harm the blood, then it will produce a reaction in the alien. That's yeah, because it's basically of it's a so...
1: symbiotic type microorganism, isn't it, yeah. visit, really? So, so even
0: though you separate the blood, if you do something nasty to the blood, it will make the alien in the person react. Mm. So they got like a... Is it they heat up some kind of wire and stick it in the blood to yeah. kind of sizzle. And that produces the reaction. When they find out who now has... Now I'm going to show the... you what I
1: know already. it <laughs> has got that squeak when he puts it in and moves it across the petri dish. Ooh.
0: Yeah. But the I when they actually find whose blood is infected, the it, it's a make you jump moment. It mm. really is shocking. Um, but a, a fantastic film. Um I love that film as well. I like that probably almost as much as they live. I'll put the two on a pedestal. Yeah,
1: I'm just a huge carpenter fan.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I missed it. I was a bit, uh, without wanting to take the mickey, yeah. a little bit younger than yourself. Um, missed most of it the first time around. I think I saw The Fog in the late 80s mm. when it was on the telly. And probably, to show how young I was at the time, I probably wasn't actually allowed to stay up to the end of it because I can't... I know it does end with a, a ghost doing something in it, but wouldn't want to spoil the end of that yeah. film maybe we'll talk about that later but that's the only carpenter film we'll do a pirate ship um... film at some point because it's about pirates isn't it absolutely I, I, mm. I don't Slightly, know about the original I've, I've yeah. se- this is terrible I've seen the remake of The Fog recently oh my god oh it's shit it's unbelievably bad it sullies the memory of the film um, it was dog shit it really was terrible but um, The Thing great film yep yeah. Does it surprise you? I mean, I don't know if John Carpenter holds the rights to these films. Have they
1: are they done a prequel?
0: Has anybody tried to remake it? Have they offered him another... Not
1: that I know that a remake... So, there are the prequel's yeah. there, but I've not heard of any remakes on the uh, I
0: sincerely hope they don't, to yeah. be honest. I, I'm sure, yeah, some
1: things will be left But there again, them. there's supposed to be a Titanic uh, sequel in the pipeline, isn't there, son?
0: Well, well, can you make a sequel
1: to the Titanic? Well, they've already done it. It was called Razor Titanic, and that was shit, but... Yeah. <laughs> I mean it sunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be the most boring film ever. It just stays on the bottom of the ocean and nothing happens. Well no, it's about the loves and lives of the fish that swim around. <laughs> is it uh, an unofficial sequel to Finding Nemo? No theres well? there is a f there is a there is a Titanic 2 out, but that's a kind oh, of uh, it's Lord. a low budget B horror movie about a disaster movie about a ship that goes out to reproduce you know, so a Titanic fans go out on a boat and
0: yeah. Uh, now, if they'd have just killed the cast and crew instead of, well, that would have Kevin K. Winslet. Winslet. Never mind. No. Well, that's the end of the theme selections. Right, the final section of the uh, of this uh, episode is going to be so bad it's great. As always, uh, made a very strong start in the last episode. So, so we've got. Uh, we had
1: well, also ones we did last episode the giant Gila monster. Um... You
0: did giant Gila monster. I did the remake of the Wicker Man. Oh,
1: that's right. Yeah,
0: with the bear. With the bear. Punching a bear bear in the face. No, no, no. Punching a woman. A bear (coughs) punching a woman. A (coughs) man in a bear costume. Punching Punching a high priestess in the face. Nicholas Cage in a bear costume. Nicholas Cage in a bear (laughs) costume. I don't know how many episodes I'm going to get to mention that in, but uh, this week I am going to talk about Battlefield Earth from 2000. Uh, No, you
1: can't. Can I not? No, uh, the, the Church of Scientology will put an injunction on you before you start.
0: Ah, I sneer at Scientology. I, I laugh in the face of Scientology. They don't scare me, those Scientologists. Right, adapted from the 1982 novel Battlefield Earth by L. Ron Hubbard, the godfather of Scientology. Right, the plot. Now, the, the plot, I've got a very short bill. We won't talk about the plot too much. I have to talk about the backstory there later. Plot. There is a plot. The plot. Year 3000, Earth has been conquered and occupied by an aggressive and oppressive race of technologically superior aliens called Cyclops. Um, might mention them later. But uh, humans have been either enslaved and used for manual labour or are living primitive lives in remote territories. Um, the lead character... Like Wolverhampton. <laughs> like Wolverhampton, yes. Um, i don't know the names of any of the actors in it apart from John Travolta, who is the yeah it's his vehicle but the uh the the main hero of the story is one of these primitive humans called Johnny Goodboy Tyler what a shit name um, he's a member of one of these tribes and uh, he leaves the safety of the tribe to explore and he promptly gets captured and, if you ask, uh, he does he does. He gets captured and enslaved by the Cyclops at this point we meet Turl, played by uh, John Travolta leader of the Cyclops mining operation on Earth and General Orr, a Nasty Bastard Um, he stupidly enhances Tyler's intellect with some snazzy, makes-you-smarter device, um, so he can be used to further improve the efficiency of their mining operation uh, by using more complicated machinery. Um, Only it provides him with the technical know-how to fight back against the tyranny, and he attempts to free the human race from its bondage. Um, That's all you need to know about Whoops, Mr
1: Travolta, you fucked up.
0: You fucked up, Mr Travolta. As I said, stars John Travolta. Backstory to this mm. um, 1975, John Travolta converts to Scientology and the uh, 20th century wacky sci fi religion um, that isn't at all a spooky cult. Not at all. And Not it, at wasn't,
1: all. it wasn't invented for uh, as allegedly as it does, because Elon Hubbard hasn't actually never gone into why he created Scientology other than it happened after a sci fi convention where he was seen getting very drunk of that 1971. Well, he's a fascinating character, Hubbard. Mm. Um, Pretty good th- writer, actually, overall.
0: I, well, some we'll, of his stuff, you yeah. know. We'll get to that, possibly. There's mention of the writing. As we go. Step forward to 1982, the release of the sci-fi novel Battlefield Earth by Scientology godfather L.R. L. Hubbard. Um, the novel gets universally panned by all of the critics. Mm. But it's not s- one of his best somehow enters the bestseller list at number one, reportedly shifting 150,000 copies in its week of release.
1: Maybe because people are going, you better read this, you won't believe how
0: bad it is. No, that, a large percentage of that figure was purchased in bulk by the Church of Scientology themselves. Well, that's one um, way. May possibly have been a factor. Uh, massive, massive... Uh,
1: short ridden by Scientology. Yeah, They're yeah. Who would have thought
0: it? Um, apparently, the Church of Scientology um, bought it en mass, gave it out to members, you know, Scientologists. They kind of insisted that every Scientologist n- didn't need to own one, not two, but three copies. <laughs> so I mean, they the the reason and it 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 must have cost them more to actually do that than to mm. uh, than they got in the proceeds for the book. But you know, all publicity is good publicity, and
1: everyone cashes the checks anyway.
0: Well, he cashes the check now. At the time, um. John Travolta, um, their most high profile supporter of Scientology, um, was given an autographed copy of the book by Hubbard himself and advised him that he would really love this book to be adapted to a film. So that's where the seed of it starts off. Mm-hmm. They went as far as um, uh, there was a script, a screenplay written at the time. Um, Travolta tried repeatedly via his agent and his connections to get the film made but, but in the uh,
1: early 80s Travolta really wasn't his
0: star power was much diminished after a string of box office flops and no studio wanted to touch it with a shitty stick it was absolutely cast out um, and the just the fact that there was a Scientology angle mm. to it as well it was uh, considered to be you know box office poison and nobody would go near it Fast forward on to 1986, L. Ron Hubbard dies. Fast forward on to 1994, Pulp Fiction comes out, and suddenly Mr. Travolta is exceptionally relevant again. Mm -hmm. He's the golden boy, and he renews his efforts to get the movie made. And after six long years of studio-switching argument, wheeling and dealing, Battlefield Earth, the movie, is finally released. Um, And if the panning of the book was in any way harsh the reviews for the film um i even the our local newspaper the evening post produced a two page um, panning of battlefield i remember that uh, i, I have, they you know not considered to be a high art newspaper at all you usually got half a page write up on whatever piece of mainstream crap was coming out that yeah. week
1: the rest his car
0: two pages on the uh you know a uh, literal um assassination of uh, the plot of Battlefield Earth. Um quite naturally it lost a shed load of money. Um the the budget's reported to be about fifty million, um and it's kind of been hailed as one of the worst films of all time and one of the you know the biggest box office mm-hmm. bombs. Um I think about five Scientologists and their Scientologist dog went to see it in the cinema. I know no one who actually went to see it in the cinema.
1: So I saw Um, it, um, I watched... I mean, my dad, our man's a big sci-fi fan. And uh, I can remember him getting it on DVD. Um, This is going back when I was visiting him a couple of years ago. We sat down to watch it. I fell asleep about halfway through. No. And then he turned around and said, what was it like? And he goes, well, I don't think I'll be watching that again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the thing about it. It's a bad film. The acting is wooden. Um, the script and character development is awful. Um, it's devoid of any sense of realism. Its special effects are underwhelming, And the ending is completely unfeasible. Just about the only credible character and performance in the film comes from John Travolta, who... I actually think he's fantastic in the film. Um, In a way, he must know he's holding up a a burning building. Uh, He must know. But he sticks to his guns all the way through. He doesn't... You know, sometimes when you see... I know sometimes they shoot films out of sequence and all sorts. But sometimes you see a film where they started out with fantastic intentions. And halfway through they realise this is going to be shit. And even the the cast and the crew give up and, you know, the the cinematography goes downhill and it just, you know, they just wait to wrap it up. Not a bit of it. John Travolta plows his heart into this role right the way through, right to the bitter end. <laughs> um, the reason I consider the film to be so bad it's great is just the sheer number of things it fucks up um, and the extent to which it fucks them up. Um... When you put all the, uh, well, I mean, like I said, all of it, everything, (laughs) the script, the acting, apart from Mr. Travolta, the special effects, the concept, um, the, it's just ludicrous. It's just absolutely ludicrous. Um, When you put all the shit components together, um, you end up obviously with a bigger pile of shit, but it's, um, you end up with a a spectacle of badness that um, strangely becomes a bit of a joy to behold. It crashes and it burns, um, and it's worth watching every awful minute of it. it It's not that it fails as a film, it's just the sheer number of ways it fails as a film. And I, I watched it in disbelief, because I'm watching one of the biggest Hollywood stars in the world potentially setting fire to their career. <laughs> um... You fell asleep during it. Um, yeah, I lasted I, about
1: 24. I, 30 I persisted minutes in, with it, was because
0: it. just whenever I thought it was... It. There are a few points when it goes... You know, if you're a bit tired and you try and watch it, you will fall asleep. But if, you're, if you if if you watch it just waiting for the next bad bits, it's only just okay. The well, I'll court, give it another
1: go it at some point.
0: Um, I wouldn't do that far. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it about four years ago, <laughs> and I'm not quite ready to. Uh, I'm
1: still getting over. Well, I've never the finished. What well, I've never seen it all the way through. So yeah,
0: maybe we'll maybe I'll I'll uh, I'll get a copy of it for you, or we can sit through it again. Yeah, we'll get a couple of beers uh, in and quite a, I was a laughing. few tears. See who falls asleep first during. But um, Battlefield Earth, so bad it's great for me.
1: Okay, right, now we we mentioned the work of my, uh, the director of my selection a bit earlier on. Um, The director is Roland Wanker Emmerich. Do you hate all of his films? I've yet to see one that's impressed me. What else has he done, first of all? Godzilla. Well, Godzilla's shit. Yeah, Independence Day. Independence Day is a bit shit. I Uh, think he did the day after. Day after tomorrow. Which is. I've not seen that one, so I can't comment. It's a bit less shit, but... 10,000 BC? I haven't seen that. Thankfully. That is shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my girlfriend, she's a huge kind of cave person film fan. <laughs> I wonder what you were going to say. Oh, my girlfriend's a huge cave
0: person. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we yeah. have to edit he that She <laughs> <laughs> said that, not me. Um, Roland Emmerich is one, my opinion. He is great at shooting huge and very spectacular action sequences. However, when it comes to the other things you need for a movie like plot, dialogue, character development, the guy uh the guy couldn't make a cake, let alone make a movie. Yeah? Um, 2012, um his big his last big disaster film, uh which we'll come to in the in a little bit, came out in 2009. Basically the plot line is 2009. you've got Danny Glover, who's the president of the US um as the doing the bit in the Oval Office, in comes the worried scientist that's blagged his audience. Uh I've got these things, there's there's bad shit happening in the galaxy, the sun's doing stuff and it's gonna fuck the earth up. He gets it confirmed, other governments have the same kind of thing, and he starts organising the way to save humanity. Which you don't know at the moment, but go USA because Danny Glover's leading it. It's super volcanoes, isn't it? Oh right, more than that, mate, we'll come yeah. to that in a minute. Meanwhile, John Cusack is a sci-fi writer, the basic plot line is they're kind of building huge arcs to save humanity with. and They can take, they, they take 400,000 members of humanity on these various boats, about three or four of them being built. And uh, the Yanks are allocating their places on a strict lottery basis. Put your name down, you, get t- you, know, you give them a ticket and you're going to draw Whereas the Europeans are selling theirs, and the Chinese are giving theirs to members of the political of the Communist Party, and it's go USA, we're fair. Everyone else is corrupt and shit. Kind of thing. And while this is happening, the world the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the Yellowstone Caldera blows up while John uh, Cusack and his family are there. where well, they just met Woody Harrelson, and they outrun the uh, super volcanoes pyroclastic flow in a light aircraft. <laughs> Um was it? Helicopter onward, So, You've got the Earth crush shifts. You've got um, the White House is destroyed when an aircraft carrier surfs its way into the White House. Have you seen this? I have. Yeah. Um, Los Angeles gets blown up and flips upside down as the San Andreas Fault lets go. The uh, script gets sillier and sillier and sillier. And the science behind it just gets worse and worse and worse. Great special effects. The sequence where the where the tsunami is kind of wiping out the east coast of America and this and this sort of like four hundred foot high mega tsunami is wiping out New York is absolutely mind blowing to watch, yeah. But um, the fact that r- r- riding on the edge of this is the uh, bit of Teddy for Washington, riding on the breaking wave is the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, which then crashes at the White House, killing off the Senate, yeah. Yes, makes it kind of... That would have been good, but oh, you dropped the ball again. And it's got some some of the fan, worst or oh, unintentionally funny one-liners ever. I've got a few examples here. We're at 29,000 feet. What can be on the radar? Burn him on the yes, earth 29,000 feet worth of water at this point. <laughs> what can be at 29,000 feet? We're headed straight for the north face of Mount Everest, Mr. Asher. And if you can't start the engines, we will not survive the impact. Then there's, you uh, see, there's this is a bit of bad science. Neutrinos from the sun have mutated into microwaves and are heating up the core of the Earth. Africa has risen several thousand feet. I suppose that's why they call it the Cape of Good Hope. Oh, for God's sake. Now, bear in mind, <laughs> if they've just narrowly avoided crashing into the summit of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet... How many a few thousand feet has Africa risen <laughs> to be able to sail to it, to recolonise and start the earth? The acting is kind of... Well, I mean, you've got some great actors in there, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson, Danny Glover and a few others. But you can see they're doing it for the money. They put no effort into it whatsoever. It, they never get out of first gear. The guy that wrote the dialogue needs to be taken out and shot. Rowan Demerick has recently came out when the film came out in 2009 Rowan Demerick said that this would be his last ever disaster movie which I'd take as the fact that Rowan Demerick is giving up filmmaking for good well you would hope so I would hope so because um, you know I have yet to see a Rowan Demerick film Yeah, even Godzilla I mean as it will come to in later editions of this podcast you'll see how much of a Godzilla head I am but even on that one, some of the special effects on it are mind-blowing. But the fact is, those special effects, you, you, he's trying to... Like, you know, Ron Demerick making a film with his special effects, he's trying to polish turds. The guy cannot make a movie to save his frickin' life. Here is the thing, yeah.
0: and, I mean, we don't talk a lot about mainstream cinema... No, we don't. This For all these broadcast. reasons.
1: Roland Emmerich's one of the reasons. A lot of,
0: these, um, mm. a lot of these films have kind of crossed into the mainstream, they're, but they're they're exceptions. Mm. They're ones that have transcended the genre yeah. or the budget that they had. And, uh, Roland Emmerich has always, all of these films you mentioned, had huge budgets behind them. Mm. But one unifying factor, other than the fact that most of them are shit, in fact, all of the ones we mentioned are shit, they make a fuck-ton of money, every single one of them. Um 2012 was
1: it cost over I a mean, but It made 770. It
0: made a ridiculously. You know, it was enough yeah. to, to to basically bankroll a small country. Mm. I mean, the the guys' films make a fortune. they're there, people go and
1: see them in their droves. Well, I wonder whether that's because of, I mean a lot of people that I know go to see Ron Demerick films purely because of the special effects and the and the huge set pieces. I mean, even some like Independence Day. Some of the air, you know, the air battle where, um, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Will Smith is dogfighting the alien fighter.
0: Absolutely. And they're
1: doing the Dan Busters bit down the canyon. It's brilliant, brilliantly done. Uh, it's just that the rest of the film is shite. You know? And also, I hate his USA. The guy's a German filmmaker, German national. Naturalized American, but his American jingoism as well. Well, I don't think you get the kind
0: of budgets that he's got without ticking those boxes. Um, I mean, it is it is mainstream consumerist filmmaking. Isn't yeah, it? it's big, it's dumb, it's extraordinarily expensive. Mm. The special effects, as you expect, are cutting edge, and they always are.
1: Um, plot, character development—they mm. are just. But like I said, we're twenty twelve. I watched it on on DVD knowing all this in advance and I've got to admit I was as so I watched it with the girlfriend Mariette I love and we pissed ourselves laughing all the way through we were in stitches
0: I must admit I didn't think it was so bad it was great I just thought it was a bad
1: film <laughs> oh no, with us I think it was purely the dialogue I mean it's gave to yeah. a couple of one-liners there I, just, I, and then um, the idea yes, you got fantastic. Oh, oh my God! They're surfing an aircraft carrier. For yeah, wireless. I think the aircraft. Oh from my from that, God! From
0: the point the San Andreas fault collapses, up to that point, um, it you know it's building, and the eruption of the super volcano in Yellowstone Park is quite good, um, and then the San Andreas hmm. fault splitting, and the <laughs> attempted to rescue, and then just taking off as the as the whole. The whole of um <coughs> California falls into the sea. Um it's pretty you know, breathless up to that point, and then it just becomes a huge turgid pile of cack.
1: Yeah, apart from the bit at the end where we launched the arcs and he's trying to dodge Mount Everest. But well, that's where that's where a lot of the classic one liners are coming from. Uh, okay. Yeah. But like I said, Roland Emmerich, the world's shittiest filmmaker, or you know, this guy, you know, in my opinion, this guy makes Ed Wood look good. Because at least with Edward Jr., he didn't pretend to be anything other than what he was. Um Roland Emmerich, crap filmmaker, but 2012 for 2009, for So bad. Just what I said it had me in stitches all the way through. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll be
0: interested to see what you follow that up with next time. But uh well, we've I've got a, few. Uh, well, I've got a few. <laughs> We've reached the end of the episode. Oh uh, we've got to go. We've gotta go, we've gotta go. So we'll do um just to, to remind you, you can uh, get this podcast, and um, the best place to go is to my blog, the filmmaking blog, uh, Crash and Burn blog. That's www.mysticgym.blogspot.com. The last time I read out the feed burner um link for getting the podcast i've now got a button on the blog that will tell you what it is because i don't think i'm going to read it correctly two episodes running i was quite chuffed i got it right last time you looked very impressed when i read the whole thing the http's and everything i'm not going to do that again because i will arse it up completely so have a look at the subscribe to the podcast thing if you do that if you're kind of a bit more uh Bit more down to earth and a bit uh, less technologically uh, savvy with it. You can just basically download it as an MP3 or stream it from SoundCloud directly. There's also a link to uh, the previous episode, which you can also download or stream or whatever, whatever you choose to do. So uh, you can do that from the, from the blog.
1: And I gonna get a quick plug-in? Absolutely. Don't forget BCFM Sunday Rock. I'm a rock DJ normally, so it's BCFM Sunday Rock Show. FM in the Bristol UK area or www.bcfm.org.uk 10pm UK UK time every Sunday night. Three hours of cutting edge underground rock music. Fantastic. Right, there might
0: be a bit of a break until um, we do the next one because I'm going away for a week. He's going to Brighton. I'm going to Brighton. much deserved mm. break so we'll plan um, I don't know what's going that's to happen that's the interesting in well,
1: of... film set in Brighton film set
0: in Brighton there's a few of those yeah I know a few of maybe we'll I'll look at that a possible future theme yeah but uh, that's the uh, that's the end of episode two I'm Jim Cogan Oh, John Wisby uh, this was the Crash and Burn movie podcast and we'll see you next time bye 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 <laughs>